WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to the Sci Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Depression is a worldwide mental health condition that many people suffer from. Psychiatric electroceutical interventions are currently in clinical trials for the treatment of depression, OCD, and even eating disorders. To tell us more about this, we are joined by researchers Marissa Courtright and Emily Castillo. Welcome, Marissa and Emily. May you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm Emily. I'm a senior majoring in neuroscience at Michigan State University. My name is Melissa Clinton, and I am a junior majoring in neuroscience and criminal justice at MSU. Thank you for joining us this morning to talk to us about your work. Could you tell us in our audience what psychiatric electroceutical interventions is, how does that work, and how do you use it in your research? Psychiatric electroceutical interventions, or PEIs, use electric or magnetic stimulation in the treatment of different diseases, such depression, OCD, even Parkinson's disease. So we do research on four different types of psychiatric electrophysical interventions, electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, deep brain stimulation, or DBI, or adaptive brain implants, or ABI. And we actually study the perceptions, beliefs, and concerns across different stakeholder groups on the use and implementation of these different technologies for the treatment of depression specifically. Wow, that's a lot of different methods that you just mentioned. Do they all use the same general mechanism and what are their differences? Electroconvulsive therapy or ECT is when electrodes are placed on the scalp of the patient and electric current is sent through to the brain. Transcranial magnetic stimulation involves the use of a magnetic coil that is just placed around the patient's head, inducing a magnetic current. DBS, or deep brain stimulation, actually is a physical procedure, and it involves implanting electrodes into the brain beneath the scalp, um, and stimulation of these electrodes can be adjusted, and electrodes are placed in different parts of the brain to treat different disorders. The DBS is currently approved for use for the treatment of Parkinson's disease, but it is still in clinical trials for the treatment of depression. And then adaptive brain implants, or ADI, are very similar to DBS, except instead of being able to adjust the stimulation from outside of the body and having to go to the doctor to get your stimulation adjusted, it's on a closed loop circuit, so it receives responses from the brain itself and adjusts the stimulation on its own. That's really interesting. Around a year ago, we actually interviewed a student who studied the implantation of these electrodes into the brain. And during the course of this interview, we spoke about the ethical concerns that revolve around this particular subject. How does your research relate to the study of PEIs and this more general topic? So our study was looking at perceptions of psychiatrists, patients, and members of the public. And so we did interviews that were semi-structured and we asked them about a variety of neuroethical considerations, such as side effects and benefits, invasiveness, effects on personality, and really tried to understand what the differences and similarities among these key stakeholder groups were about these ethical concerns. Whenever you're gathering their perceptions, I'm assuming that you're surveying them or interviewing them about their viewpoints. However, I never really thought about this affecting people's personality. 
How are you investigating how this affects people's personality? Like, what questions are you asking them? This is actually the neurological consideration that I focused on most. They were each assigned one PEI, such as ECT, TMS, or DBS. And we would say, do you think that this has the potential to affect a patient's personality? And the interviews were structured that we would ask a question, and then it kind of followed into a conversation. So sometimes they would elaborate, and they would give us the reasoning behind it. Other times they would just say yes or no. But we followed a coding process through which, after the interviews were recorded and transcribed, our team went through and read all of the interviews and formed a code book so that we could identify the key themes throughout these interviews. And from that, we were able to gain a better understanding about what factors they believe affect your personality. And it can be really difficult to kind of define what we think of as personality. Even in the neuroethical literature, there's a lot of debate and discussion about what personality and your sense of self and personal identity, how we can really define that and how that can be changed or altered if it's set in stone or not. And another issue that comes up when we're talking about these treatments that are used to treat depression is that depression is a very mood-based illness, like mental illness. And so if we're talking about how these technologies can potentially treat the symptoms of depression, well, does that mean they're changing your personality or does that mean they're helping resolve these negative symptoms that you could associate with personality? So it's interesting to discuss and hear how people differentiate the two and how they can be really complicated and intertwined with one another. The idea of having an electrode stuck inside of my brain is a pretty freaky idea, personally. But I can understand how it could be really helpful towards treating different diseases like Parkinson's, like you had mentioned earlier. In these interviews, did you ever touch upon how people felt about these different invasive techniques and what their attitudes were towards that? Yeah, we did. We talked a lot about invasiveness. And so typically in the medical literature, when you think of invasiveness, you think of exactly what you just described. Inserting something into the skin, digging into the skin, kind of cutting open. But in fact, when we talked with our stakeholder group, a lot of other different types of invasiveness were actually brought up, such as like an emotional or psychological invasiveness. If we're talking about like psychotherapy, kind of sharing your thoughts and your feelings and past trauma can be really, really invasive to a lot of people, and it can bring up a lot of painful emotions, as well as this idea of lifestyle invasiveness. So for ECT or TMS, when you are receiving that treatment, you have to go in multiple times a week. For ECT, you are put under anesthesia, and so you can't drive yourself back and forth to the appointments. You have to have somebody else drive you. And so that can be super invasive in terms of your lifestyle if you have other things going on and a job and a family. It can be really, really hard to have access to these treatments. And so not only did we talk about these different types of invasiveness, we also talked about how different technologies can be invasive in different ways. So if you think of DBS as putting things into your brain, that's really, really scary and invasive to a lot of people. But if you think about TMS, you're just kind of putting the magnet outside of your head, maybe that isn't as physically invasive for other people. Yeah, I agree with Danny because I don't think I'd want something particularly stuck inside my brain. Even though it might help me, I would still have a lot of apprehension towards this. But what you're saying with TMS, putting it on the outside of my head, I might be more comfortable with that. From what I remember about our interview last year that Danny had briefly mentioned, we were saying that these brain implants are very small so that people couldn't really notice it. However, I don't recall seeing people walking around with devices on their head. 
are some of these treatments like TMS only done inside of the doctor's office or are these wearable devices that they walk around with? So for both ECT and TMS, they are exactly like you said. You walk, you go into the doctor's office, you have your appointment, and then you leave. It's similar to dialysis in the sense that you go up, you have your appointment, and you leave without anything else. You aren't walking around with all this on your head, which is why with ECT and TMS, lifestyle invasiveness is a huge factor because people having to go to these appointments multiple times a week to factor in the drive time, the appointment time, all of that stuff, it can be really, really impactful on somebody's every, like everyday life. So DDS and ADI are similar to a pacemaker for the heart, where the electrodes are placed on the brain. However, there's a little battery pack that goes inserted in your chest. So it's typically not visible to other people, but you yourself may know it's there. I'm glad to hear that people have a place that people can go and receive this kind of therapy with under the recommendation by their physician. However, it's no secret that the healthcare industry here in America is pretty messed up, and sometimes it could be very costly for people to actually get some really specific treatments. Are these treatments very common for people to get? Are they common for different insurance companies to cover? And if not, how expensive is it for people to really get and does this lead to a negative stigma to actually pursuing this kind of treatment in the first place? I can't say exactly how much they cost, but I do know that there were numerous concerns concerning the cost of the treatment and also accessibility. If someone lives in a more rural area, it may be more difficult for them to have access to these treatments. And also, since these for DDS it is still undergoing clinical trials, this is not currently available for depression just at your regular clinic. You would have to go and be involved in a clinical trial to have access to this treatment. But people were very concerned about cost and insurance coverage because DBS is basically a surgery, so that might be a huge problem for some people. Another one of the ethical themes that we coded for and that we asked about were these barriers to treatment. And so cost and insurance was a really, really big one that the majority of our participants across all the stakeholder groups did voice as a big concern for them. In terms of if that would stigmatize the treatment, I'm not exactly sure if that's the case, but these treatments in and of themselves are very stigmatized, not only because they are being used to treat mental illness, which has a mountain of stigma in and of itself, but also when a lot of people think of ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, they're kind of thinking of this crazy shock therapy, torture that's shown in a lot of older movies and even some more recent movies. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a pretty old movie, but that was brought up so often in all of our interviews that people would point to that and say how because it just, ECT just seems so scary and they would never be able to do that because they think it sounds like torture, when in fact, in current day, that's not at all how ECT is performed and not what it looks like. But these old movies and old TV shows have really, really stigmatized these treatments for people, which can also be a really big barrier in terms of accessibility for people who need these treatments. And that's part of the reason why our study is so important, is to understand these perceptions so that then we can create tools for the general public that give them accurate knowledge and accurate information about these therapies so that people can really get the treatment that they require and that they deserve instead of having these false conceptions about what a treatment actually is.
Thanks for clarifying that to our audience because many people may have that scene in their head like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest like you were just mentioning. I remember seeing that movie many years ago and you're right, it's not people's fault that that's what they're thinking because that's how the media is just portraying it, but it's much more than that. I was wondering about your interviewees. Whenever you were conducting these interviews, were they in person or were they virtual? And also, were they with local people in the mid-Michigan area or was this more of a national or international survey base? We recruited psychiatrists, patients, and members of the public from Michigan, and we conducted 30-minute to one-hour semi-structured interviews with them. So that would mean that we have a series of questions that we go through and ask them, but we hope that in the end it'll turn out to be more of a conversation. And these interviews were done over Zoom, some did phone calls, and we actually had some people that came in person. So we had a variety of different ways of interviewing. It just depended on their preference. And so all of these interviews were focused on stakeholders from the Michigan area. The concept of these interviews and the content of the interviews was used in order to help develop a national survey that was sent out earlier this spring to try and get a more national sample of psychiatrists, patients with and without, or I think patients with depression, and then the general public. Something I've been thinking about throughout the course of this interview is how whenever teenagers are going through puberty, a lot of them can end up suffering from clinical depression without even knowing it. Are there any ethical concerns around using this kind of PEI therapy to help treat adolescent depression? And did your survey touch upon that in any way at all? Our survey did not explicitly ask about the potential of treating younger children or, or kids or teens, as we would call them. We did ask about guidelines for treatment and what people think potential guidelines should be. And many people agreed that maybe not for kids that are really young and not for more of the elderly population. And just because you are doing things with electricity in the brain, it could be damaging for those two populations of people. Uh, I do know that there are several studies that exist in the neuroethics literature that talk about the guidelines or the potential use of these treatments for children or adolescents. In our interviews also, people touched on informed consent as a concern, uh, especially because you are treating a population with mental illness and the side effects of mental illness could have effects on their cognitive abilities and their decision-making skills. So that was another thing that we investigated was the concern of informed consent, especially with PEIs, which treat mental illness. I understand the ethical dilemma that some people are worried that elderly patients might not be able to make a decision, and then they're worried if their caregivers will accurately represent how they feel. However, I'm wondering, are there concerns with the elderly brain with implanting or with using a PEI in regards to affecting their brain specifically? So again, our study didn't really specifically talk about elderly versus adolescent versus more of a middle-aged population, although I do know that DDS, specifically the brain implant that you're talking about, is approved to Parkinson's disease, which can often be seen in a more elderly population. The overarching issue in terms of the informed consent process and in any population is the fact that there's a lot about these technologies that we just simply don't know. So we know that if you send these specific electric signals through the brain with the use of ECG, or if we put these electrodes in specific spots in the brain in DBS, we know that it works, and we know that there has been a lot of success for a lot of different patients. 
However, we don't know why it works. We don't really understand the mechanism of action for all of these technologies. And so a big discussion in the literature and in our interviews was, well, can there truly be an informed consent process? Because how can the physicians inform the patients about this procedure and how can the patients make an accurate informed decision if no one really knows how any of these things work? I'm glad you were able to conduct these interviews to facilitate these kinds of discussions around the attitudes on PEI therapy. Could you tell us in our audience about what the implications of the study are and how you're using things like that code book that you put together to inform future studies on PEI therapy? Some general implications of this study is that by understanding these differences and similarities among stakeholder perceptions and PEIs, this can help inform clinicians' conversations with patients as they will have a better understanding about specific concerns or beliefs that their patients hold. They will also help patients distinguish between treatment options if they have a better understanding of how each treatment works and the different implications of it. And then also, we hope to contribute to public understanding of these interventions because a lot of people don't know about these treatments or there's a current stigma around them. And we hope to break that with informing the public with accurate information and so that people aren't afraid to go and receive the treatment that they need. In terms of the interviews and the code book, so we developed this code book specifically to code and to kind of determine the results from these interviews. And the results that we found from these interviews using that code book was then used to inform our national survey. So they had a lot of questions. On this national survey, there was a lot of questions that were very similar to what we asked in our interviews. We just expanded on them a little bit more and made it easier to check off answers than necessarily have to talk everything out. And we're currently developing a code book to code the responses for these interviews and to continue to analyze the data that comes from that. Because these surveys were on a much wider scale on a much on a national level instead of just a Michigan level as the interviews were, we hope that with a much broader sample size, we are able to kind of accurately and see if the trends that we found in our interviews also hold true for this survey. And with a larger sample size, we can contribute to the literature that is out there and add in the differences that we hopefully find across stakeholder groups because a lot of research that has been done on these interventions before do not take into account different stakeholder groups. But we've already found from our smaller sample size of interviews that patients, public, and psychiatrists really think about these technologies in very different ways. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us today. Before we go, I wanted to ask you both, do you know what you want to do whenever you finish your degree over here at Michigan State University? Are you both looking to possibly go to grad school or industry or maybe even continue this research? I am currently a senior, and my end goal is to go into the medical field. I am on a pre-medical track and plan to apply to medical school after I graduate. I'm planning on pursuing a graduate degree and going to grad school. I have not figured out what I want to do after that, but that next step would be grad school. I have no doubt that both of you are going to achieve the goals that you have in mind for whenever you finish and graduate this upcoming year. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk to us about your work on the attitudes surrounding this PEI therapy, and hopefully the stigma towards mental health is going to improve as this research continues onward. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate it. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Fuentes on Impact 89FM. 
Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Slyfrows can be found online on slyfrows.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Slyfrows, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at slyfrows at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.